Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to Double Exposure and their game design convention Metatopia at Metatopia Online 2020. These panels have also been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and moderators at this event. Now, let's get to it. Episode 294, Applying Education Theory for Stronger Game Design. Presented by Gabriel de la Los Angeles, Senfung Lim, and Ben Quinones. Hey there, I'm Metatopia, my name is Sun Fung Lim, and we're here with a panel with Brian and Gabriel, and they're going to introduce themselves. So, uh, Brian, let's start with you. Hi, uh, my name is Dr. Brian Quinones. Um, there's like a bunch of letters afterwards, but to, the, as far as making sense for this, uh, registered play therapist, supervisor, and licensed professional counselor. Um, also, I am co-owner of Gaming Approaches Towards Education. Uh, where we focus on doing uh, using like gameplay, storytelling, role-playing games, uh, combining it with uh, therapy to provide education for like uh, parents, children, teens. Um, and I am currently working on a project with Ninth Level Games um, called uh, Animals and Adventures, and we're trying to do uh, something similar to what we're talking about here, which is. Uh, design a game that has educational components and uh, an educational focus, both therapeutically and like scholastically. Um, but you know, it's fun. Like, like try to keep it fun, right? You know? Keep it fun. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, Gabriel, what about you? My name is Gabriel de Los Angeles, son of Chief Andy de Los Angeles of the Snoqualmie Nation out here in Washington State. Uh, I'm a PhD in learning science and human development, writing, working on my uh, dissertation right now. And uh, for the most part, I focus on the integration of uh, culture, land, and place uh, in game design, as well as focusing on creating spaces for indigenous people to be playing games. Excellent. And my name is Sen Fung Lim. I'm a professor of psychology and occupational therapist. I left clinical work, I don't know, maybe eight years ago to return to academia. Uh, my areas of expertise are communication, behavior, and development. Uh, and today we're going to talk about how do game designers, uh, like all of us, use games to approach education and things like that. So are, are games educational? Can games be educational? I want to start with Gabriel because he had uh, a great answer during our pre-chat. Tell us what you say about games. Uh, games are already educational. Uh, games are already things that, that are teaching us things, whether or not we, we implicitly discuss uh, the, the designed framework or the, if there is one altogether, uh, you are already being taught about how to do things, whether or not it be uh, cultural reference making or to create inside jokes uh, to make more culture from a place that you're, you're hanging out in. Uh, games to me are already places where learning and education are taking place. Excellent. What do you think about that, Brian, in terms of your games and how you work? So um, we, what we do here is a lot of like, we, we'll pick different games based off of what we want to teach, right? But it's it, one of the hardest parts is trying to, trying to explain to the parents, like, no, this is therapy. This is psychoeducation. Yes, you see us playing a game, um, but that game is leading towards either teaching social skills, teaching math skills, teach you know, this, um, coping skills. Um, in some in some cases, also, it's the idea of teaching how to teach as well, um, like just reading instructions, giving instructions, um, taking what you've been giving and, and applying it. So yeah, no, the, the, the process of play in itself is like, you know, even before language, right? Like the first, like the, kind of like the first language to, uh, for children to communicate is how they play. And so it, it's foundational to just us as human beings. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if you think about how human beings develop and how they communicate, 
uh, play is instrumental in, in learning. I mean, if you think about like constructivist theorists or anything like that, if we're going to go that deep, it's does the play drive development or does development drive play? So there's all sorts of ways of looking at this. But from a design point of view, um, can you tell me a little bit, uh, I'll start with you again, Ryan. Can you tell me as you're designing the RPGs that you're working on, how are you using um, you know, developmental theory, psychology, anything like that to inform your decisions in the game making process? Well, one of the, one of the biggest um, hurdles that uh, we have when we're, when we're looking at this is, is we're trying to come at I'm it from two different... I'm sorry. Um, the screen that's streaming on Twitch is frozen. I'm trying to get Heather back to her chair so that she can fix that. We might have to go back uh, and re-ask the question uh, that, you, that you just asked of, of Brian. Hold on just sure. a second. And I'm also going to let okay. the audience know what's going on. Whoops. Thanks, Mickey. Thanks. Technology. Um. Mm-hmm. This is better than in a classroom. Okay, you can resume. Oh Apparently, on other people's screens, everything is fine. Okay, great. Uh, so, Brian, let's just continue with the answer to that question, which is, how do you use theoretical views to inform your game design process? Well, so, like I was saying, um, we're, we're trying to come at it from a couple of different ways as far as it's psychoeducational uh, and kind of being a tool that can be used therapeutically. Uh, not, you know, also bearing in mind that it's, you know, because it's a question that comes up a lot. Um, if you're not a therapist, no, you're not doing therapy with this game. You know, like it doesn't matter what the game is. You're not doing therapy with the game. Uh, you know, depending on your state, depending, you know, what, what type of license you're doing, like that's what determines whether or not how you're doing your therapy, right? But the game itself, and gameplay itself is therapeutic. So, um, in the the way that we're doing it, where where is it that we're working on it from a school point of view? Like, what do schools need to see in order for something to be considered educational and be able to use it as a as an educational tool in schools? What does therapists need to see? in order to be able to do the uh, uh, psychoeducation? What do parents need to see in order to be able to do it with their kids? And uh, one of the the biggest issues that comes up is that we're trying to shoot for a very young audience. Um, So we're talking about like five and up. Me personally, I'm thinking cognitive levels of like four or, you know, even a little bit lower and up because the main population I work with is the autism population. So theoretically, theories-wise, I'm looking at everything from off-play. I'm looking at everything from uh, group play therapy. I'm looking at um, uh, school-based play therapy. I'm looking at like Holberg's like theories of, of moral development. Um, looking at uh, different so- like development and social skills based on level, based on age, based on cognitive level. Okay, now taking all of that and saying. What does that look like when you have two kids sitting next to each other trying to tell a story together? And all of that's happening, whether or not whether or not the kids know it, um, all of that, there's all this other stuff going on in the background. And but then, so what happens is that I tend to zero in on what the child's play style is, and that's where the game design, I think, really um, takes place because people have different play styles, GMs have different play styles. Um, can your game, can your system, whatever you're designing, meet different playstyles? We usually come at it at, at the idea of, oh, they're sitting together at the table. This is cooperative play. Mm, is it like it could be pure play? It could be cooperative play, or it could be just two people like playing solitaire together. <laughs> you know, their own games are solitaire, and that's okay. But can your can your game design, can your story design facilitate that? And if not, that you know, that's okay. Just know where where your limits are in your game design. Okay, cool. Um, Gabriel, from your perspective, I know that you look a lot at culture when you're doing game design. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, your your theoretical viewpoints in terms of represent representation, land, culture, 
And how does gaming fit into that when we're trying to educate people on, you know, our culture now and how it's affected other cultures around us? That's a very laden question. Uh, uh, let so in my let's <laughs> just whittle it down real quick. Uh, so in in the in the essence of the the way I think about the work, um, uh, in in analyzing the play that uh, culture and education are already taking place. Like period paragraph. Like that's 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 not a thing. Nothing is culturally neutral. That's not that's not a real thing. So. Uh, the, of the things that get uh, that impact uh, games and play that are erased from uh, those uh, areas are how land affects play. So whether or not you're doing a live action role play, a tabletop uh, role play setting, world setting design, uh, or even uh, board and card games, depending on how land land, whether or not you're talking about uh, the fictional diegetic character-based land or an actual game board or even just the table you're playing cards at all these things have an, an impact on how people are choosing to play in a, in a form of interaction analysis where people are how people are sitting their gestures and and, and their intonations are all things that i want to take into uh, consideration when i'm looking at how people are learning through play so when uh, in, a, in a game design for me with indigenous kids uh, in an indigenous setting where we had a STEAM camp, science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. We started from story. We started from the land. We started from uh, uh, from our cultural knowledge systems so that we were not only reinforcing indigenousness within those spaces, we were also giving giving our, our young people and our, our staffers and designers uh, a place for them to all be able to play with their own cultural frameworks that they don't necessarily get to in all sorts of other games designs. So when I when I'm thinking about how how uh, game designers can would and should be impacting their designs with culture, it is to be not just a, attentive to not doing cultural appropriation, but it is also attentive to uh what cultures they're being forcing not just in the mechanics and not just in the story because all of these things are all happening simultaneously all of these things are happening simultaneously in a way that you're either just foregrounding a conversation about something or you're backgrounding a conversation about something to me so um what people are choosing to be attentive to in games design I want to have deeper, longer conversations about what I call culturally responsible game design. Okay, that's really interesting. And we'll come back to that culturally responsible game design so much so that I'm writing it down right now. Um, I'll just tell you a little bit about how I work um, in game design with particularly children and things like that. So if you think about um, like social cultural theory of learning and in terms of what we'd call educationally the zone of proximal development. Vygotsky, who was the, the psychologist who first coined these phrases, was talking about how uh, in a mentorship program, the mentor will basically bridge this gap that's the zone of proximal development where a child or a person who's a novice doesn't have the expertise to do it so that they can actually have that really good experience in that zone. Um, and I kind of see this as where dungeon masters, right, or game masters come in as bringing that level of expertise to the story so that the new player or any player who doesn't, you know, encyclopedically know the dungeon master's guide or whatever can now enjoy themselves with having, without having to trap themselves within all these charts and numbers and die rolls and saving throws and all that kind of stuff. Um, and what happens then is we get into this position we call occupational flow. An occupational flow is where you have the skills that meet the challenge. Uh, and if you can always keep that rising as the skills get greater, the challenge gets greater, that's where having a reactive system like a human being, like a dungeon master or a game master really comes into play uh, with fluid systems because it allows the game to constantly challenge the person. And as an educator, the biggest struggle to educate anybody is engagement. Uh, there's so many distractors in our environment today, whether it's a cell phone, the person sitting next to you, what's happening outside the window, your own internal hunger or tiredness or whatever. 
if I can't engage a student, I can't teach them. And so the same thing works with games. If your games aren't engaging, they intrinsically can't teach. Uh, and so that's the thing I think that uh, before in the pre-talk, uh, you know, all three of us were talking about, you know, we have some thoughts about educational games as a moniker, as a name, and that a lot of games that tout themselves as being educational may have the content, but boy, oh boy, are they not engaging at all. And we lose people all the time because it's either way too challenging for the student or it's not challenging enough and, or it's not fun at all. Right. And I think, uh, Brian, I wanted to talk to you about that because you had really talked about, you know, especially working with uh, populations that might be neurodivergent. How do we engage people who think a little bit differently or um, see the world in a different way? You know, so that how do we use rules and design to do that? Is it all on the fly? Is it off the cuff? Or is there some formulaic things that you can recommend to the designers that they're watching? Well, what, what I would say is um, when, when you're using the examples that you're using, it, it is something that uh, can build off of a sense of mastery and lead to mastery um, and being able to meet that person at the level that they're at. So that's where like knowing what your games can and will be used for and who your target audience is is very important. Uh, because of, of that. Now, when it comes to neurodivergence, um, I will use in the office. I will, I will use several different types of games, almost as like an assessment test, to see where uh, the person is going to get that flow from. And then I start looking at families of games that are within that uh, that type of, of game. So. Um, for example, if I have someone who um, who, do, who is, it seems like they they might not necessarily understand like a lot of rules, I, one of the things I might start with uh, it depends on you know where the cognitive level is, but it, I will take like Carcassonne and just strip the game of it and just use it almost as um, like a turn taking uh, puzzle, right? Like, okay, you know, you place your role down and I'll, I'll place a role down and how can we build this together, right? So it's like a collaborative map making in that, in that regard. Um, and so that's like kind of one threshold uh, that lets me see where we are. Um, another possible threshold would be uh, Blockus, whether it's Blockus 2D, Blockus 3D, um, as a way of, is this person creating flow from this? And then if they are, then okay, that opens up a bunch of other games. But the reason I make the distinction between block is 2D and 3D, and this is something from a game design uh, standpoint people would want to keep in mind, is when working with uh, neurodivergent, I've worked with neurodivergent, uh, I've worked with uh, kids with chromosome issues, uh, you know, um, Parkinson's. Um, and so the, the thing is, is can, can your piece be comfortably used by that person. Can your game piece be comfortably used by that person? So if I have somebody who, they, you know, they hands aren't steady, I'm not going to use block as 3D, you know, like because of like the stacking and then the whole thing crashing down. Um, unless I'm purposely trying to work on that, I might do this with Jenga, unless I'm purposely trying to work on, work on education frustration tolerance and learning how to get past that. But that would be purposeful and knowing full well that it's going to be a higher challenge for that person. Um, and so, and then the same thing with storytelling. Sometimes I might pick, um, I might pick a game like Once Upon a Time. I might pick a game like um, even even Dixit as a way of seeing how can you tell stories together. Can you tell stories together, or is this another set of skills that we got to work on? So knowing knowing the what skill range your your games can target, what the what the next level up would be, and what the next level down would be, is very helpful. And if you and if you have some way of explaining where, like when you're explaining what your game is and what it does, to really hit that, because then for me it's like, okay, I know where to fit this, and this might be something that they build towards. And this might be something that's like foundational towards going to something else. Okay, Gabriel, switching over to um, the idea of. Um, games for indigenous cultures. Uh, 
are there ways that you're designing games that are not just thematically indigenized, but actually mechanically indigenized in terms of how the game itself works? That makes it just resonate with that culture, that population. Is that something you can do? Is that something we should do? Uh, I mean, it, it in in the design, whether or not you're doing mechanics or or setting, designing them purposefully for a, a, a culture or community is 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 good is a choice is important creating a diverse set of uh of circumstances in the design so that multiple communities can play out of it yeah absolutely now to say that uh that can you can can you can you do can you indigenize a design without there being indigenous people working on that design absolutely not absolutely not you cannot do that it's it, it is it is a, a lie regardless of whether or not you're you're studied into american indian ethnic studies or or whatever you want to call it uh to to unless you happen to be indigenous you're not indigenizing design you might be decolonizing it um yeah. but uh by and large can you do it uh uh with a mechanic that's that's again can can you if you're doing it by yourself you're already missing uh an indigenous point uh because to do it in relationship with other people in relationship to land in relationship to 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 place your origins and to know your history on things to have a history within the game's design to pull out uh like it's so it's not it's not a question that gets answered by indigenousness in that in that sense is there um yeah that's it okay so on that on that point in terms of the games that you're designing what kind of of things do you hope people will learn by playing them for me yeah um for because because most of my my space has been with indigenous people in designing role playing LAR, designing larps essentially mm -hmm. uh, uh, it has been mainly the chance to exist and to dream with our stories to the chance to be able to to play in our cultures that have been writ large erased destroyed either physically or just culturally genocidally so the chance to be able to live our our creation stories is something that i've gotten to explore within the last couple of years uh and to see the the contemporariness of race and ethnicity playing out in personal struggles of these native people both in the intergenerational student play and the the adult uh, uh, staffers who are also helping me out with these designs, to see so much uh, identity struggle taking place uh, has been both like it's healing. It's healing. The chance the chance to be able to explore these things, regardless of the struggles, is at least a chance for us to have those conversations and heal with them. And that's that for me is is of the the biggest hope that as an indigenous designer we give we give that we give us a chance to dream a chance to, a chance to play a chance to live out our cultural stories and to see them come to life uh in a way that well game designers can't tackle hmm. uh, and 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 for creating generational uh, and intergenerational healing in that way the, is of the highest importance to me for to, of things to me. So right. when when somebody wants to engage in this kind of work, you can't do it by yourself. Number one, uh, and number two, if you don't have a relationship into 
Native American communities, it's it's time to start. It's time, and there's no time like the present to start creating relationships. More than anything, when people sit there and question, how do I do game design without cultural appropriation? Well, like how many relationships into said cultures have you actually brooked forward in your own life? Like not just handshaking, I have a, a, a friend who is of blah, 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 race or ethnicity, but like seriously get to know and to be a part of said communities. Like the, the answer to uh, divisive strategies amongst uh, 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 keeping communities apart is, is genuinely tie those communities together with relationships. Like this isn't, this isn't science. We've been doing this years, right? For, for all, yeah, for all of our lives, all of the, all of the, the entirety of human culture based on cultural interaction with others. You either stay together or you drift apart. And so wanting to do game design in a way that hooks us all together and and, and, and it starts like building that capacity within your own community and then reaching out and building that capacity with other communities. Like it's 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 this is this is to me the most inherent facet of, of culturally responsible game design is the relationship building part. Okay, very, very good. That's an excellent, excellent viewpoint. Um, Brian, I wanted to ask you, uh, how do you keep things educational yet still interesting for the people that you're supporting and working with? So I think it comes down to like, you know, why, why are you here, right? Like when you're in my, when you're in my, my office, why are you here? Um, and so within play therapy, there's like four major areas of, of like, like what's called the powers of play. So it's like emotional wellness, social connected connections, uh, relationships, and personal strengths. And within those, there is like a total of 20 uh, additional uh, like factors, right? Like those are kind of the top factors and you have the, the smaller factors. Um, now within school-based, I've noticed that there's more, and I'm trying to understand why there's that difference, um, and I've been trying to read read up on that for for myself. Um, but it's well, you have usually what happens is, uh, especially within uh, all, uh, the autism community, and when I'm doing all play, it's like there's like six major goals within all play. It's emotional regulation, um, sensory regulation. Um, it's going to be like anxiety, it's going to be behavioral change, it's going to be social skills and relationships. And so what happens is, is you're, you know, for, with, for that population, you're coming to me possibly with issues in those areas, if not emotional, then a general form of regulation, whether it be thoughts or, or, um, or behaviors, right? And it's it's purposeful like the games like it so what happens is i think um when therapists talk about using games they will sometimes just put it in a category of oh we only use that for rapport building we only use that to like create the relationship so we can get to the therapy and i'm like no like once i know what you like and what you're into that's kind of where we're going and then it's like okay how does that relate to what you need in, in in those areas and um that's kind of the, the so it's i already have an understanding but the what the problem will be is, is that the parents will not will sometimes not understand and um it's times where i've i've just left like manual for kids on bikes on the table in the office and i'm just like i'll leave different things out there because the parents are bored or sit, you know, sitting down, going, you know, I've got nothing to do. So they just start reading and they're like, wait, you're doing this with my child. Like it, so sometimes I may not be able to explain it well enough. They can see that something is happening. Something good is happening. Um, and so I'll have to go back. Like, and I do this with the, with the client as well. Sometimes, sometimes it's, Oh, you know, you, I'll get to a point and mind you, I work with like anywhere from four to, I think the oldest person I'm seeing right now is in their twenties. Um, uh, 
and what happens is it's okay i think i'm I, like the, the person will get to that point where they're ready to start seeing what they're doing and what they need to do and then that's where the dynamic kind of changes where it's like okay fine all right so now we're playing this game you want to learn how to become more assertive you want to learn how to interact with other people more well that's why we've been playing this game now can you how does your character can you get can you, like so when i'm doing role playing uh, games it's how can you use your character to practice those things you need to learn and do you know you need for yourself now as if they're old enough and if they're not old enough to really get that that metagaming like the, the point of, of it in that regard then it's um i'm starting to see myself fall in line more with like bibliotherapy where it's they're going to tell the story they need to tell to get better and feel better i just need to make sure that they have the tools they need to do that whether it's through a like board game whether it's through storytelling or role playing um they, i am starting to look at bibliotherapy in the form of larps but I'm not as experienced with, with LARPs as well, um, mm -hmm. but it also seems to be when you're working with the younger kids, there's, hey, act it out, feel it, you know, feel it out, giving them the, the ability to just express themselves. Yeah. And then what I'll, what I'll probably do for the parents, I'll go back, here's a list of social skills that, that I've been hitting, here's a list of coping skills that I've been hitting. This is how you could follow this up at home. Um, often... Well, I, what, I, where I see myself going towards is how can the parents continue this at home? Okay, now it's your turn to learn the games that they're playing. Right. And, and why does your kid like those games? Do you like those games? Where do you connect as a family in order to in order to continue this after we're done here? Yeah, I, I like that perspective. Um, I often think about games as like stealth teaching. I think of all therapy as stealth teaching, to be honest. Um, where we're doing something else and you're learning something through it and you might not see it because you're too close. And then once you step back, it's like, oh, we were actually learning, you know, assertiveness and turn taking and reciprocity and all those kind of the soft skills that we talk about that nobody really knows how to teach, except games do it really well because they are, yep. as Gabriel says, they're intrinsically human, right? We, we are game players by nature. Um, and as you said, Brian, that's how kids really learn. So I, I definitely agree with that. Um, Gabriel, if you had one message for game designers out there um, in terms of how they could design better games, what would it be? Definitely to not do it by themselves. Uh, okay. uh, that, that's well, by and large one of the biggest problems of, if, of most of either video game or, or board game and card game design industry is the the end result of having an idea and then stewing on an idea by yourself and then designing it all by yourself is that it necessarily misses uh, some certain kinds of points. That's why we have play testing, right? So when we're doing uh, forms of, of, of play testing, we're then, we're then we're not doing the design by ourselves. So how many how many times are we choosing to create game design with other people, but then not calling it doing game design with other people? J let's just do it. Let's just do the game design with other people, like period paragraph. Um, and I know that that a lot of people tend, uh, especially in indie spaces, tend to want to do these things by themselves because they have either a, a, a great set of ideas um, or or and and uh, and those great sets of ideas they've been sitting on forever that they want to do something different from something that they've already seen. Now those inspirations are great, and when we choose to do them by ourselves, again, like like any form of of self education, we're still we're still missing a larger diversity of voices in that in that way. Now. Now, if we choose to to not just do that, but continue to have an industry that reinforces those designs, this is this is where we come up with uh, the problems of uh, cultural appropriation conversations now. So, why 
uh, the industry struggles with how do I how do I reach a more more diverse audience uh, comes to the the obvious answer of not doing it by yourself uh, and wanting to have a easy quick or cheap answer to making relationships is often the misstep and why why certain games will just never never take off with certain populations whether or not it's just a high fantasy setting that doesn't uh, get beyond a, a uh, majority white populace or whether or not you want to create uh, uh, certain mechanics what, whatever the, the idea uh, to not do not just the self-reflection which is often the hardest part of doing community outreach to know what frame what 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 who you are as a person and to actually make sure that that's tied to the design in a, in not just a, a passive way but to be intrinsically framing about it to be literal to be to be obvious to be super transparent about these things that, uh, over the years one of the biggest uh, lessons for myself has been uh trying to teach a lesson without outright stating what that lesson is means that lesson doesn't get carried over so uh forms of debriefing forms of of, of after thinking about a design will inherently uh, uh, get your players to actually take up whatever educational lesson is that you want to have in it. to just to just willy-nilly hope that that uh, uh, creating a practice without talking about it will inherently inject the practice now that could happen but you're taking a chance on rolling dice if you want to call it education right Right. Um, and to, to hammer it on, like like Brian has said, to hammer it on without being, it being fun, or in, in the way I like to think about it, as culturally referential, so that people will will latch on to a design and say, "Hey, I know about that thing. I want to engage with more designs where I get to think about that thing." So, when when you've got a, a certain set of cultural designs that you want to hope will create a certain kinds of educational practice, without calling it out. You're, you're shooting yourself in the foot about your design. So, Brian? <laughs> right? I was going to say, you, you can't tell if you're being heavy-handed if you're, if, if it's only your hands working on the project. Yeah, you know, like, because the thing is, is like, I'm, I'm listening to how you're, you're talking about this, and for me, it's like, I see that in academia too. Yeah. Where it's yeah. like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, I can't share my idea. They're going to steal it from me, or they oh. can help you make oh. it better, right? Like, like that, you know. Even in classroom yeah. education curricular design, where at least in my program, we're talking about make sure that your your design intents and your classroom intents are, are transparent by like giving them the flow of the day and and talking about the talking about like. That's still not a, a, a cultural practice that everyone is, is keyed in to, to figure out. So like if that's part of education uh, uh, programming and curricula to sit there and tell the educators to be more obvious, then this is something that also needs to be a part of game design if I want to make sure that that it isn't just, oh, here's a math game. Oh, how are we learning about math? What, what kind of fun things that we do that we actually got to the lesson about these math things without having to focus on the fact that we actually did math? How did we dream through play? How do we get to tinker? How do we get to make together? Those kinds of spaces. Yeah, I think what you're talking about in a lot of ways, uh, the debrief is, is a debrief can turn any game into an educational thing, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and it's it's the most powerful tool you can use is to be thoughtful and talk about your experiences after so that the experience then gets ingrained as a memory in terms of oh that thing i did it meant that oh really and now you're now you're wondering now there's an inquiry piece now we're thinking about it now we're going to carry it off into outside of the classroom it becomes transactional it's a really powerful way of doing things and i, I think that the idea of you know making meaningful and very obvious and transparent things about I mean when when we learn to teach it's like tell them about it tell them about it again and then at the end you, you tell them about it again mm -hmm. right teaching 
isn't isn't something that you can just let happen. I mean, I, I joke about stealth teaching, but I'm still really obvious in it when I write up my reports or something. It's like, this is what we're doing. This is the reason why. This is the activity we did, and they didn't know we were doing it, but I told them afterwards. I did a debrief with them. They talked about it. Now they know what that is. And then I wrote a concluding paragraph in my report saying, and this is why we did that thing that we did. Right. So even in my report writing to, you know, whatever, whoever I'm reporting to, it's a lot of telling them and then telling them and telling them. And I think games have to do that, um, but in a way that we can keep it engaging and fun. Um, and so I don't think doing it within the game is necessarily the, the best way to do it, because then we'll just get this like, I don't want to engage with that anymore. But I think after the fact, it's totally fine. And it, it's a really powerful way of doing it. Go ahead, Gabriel. So like the majority of my research design is in is throughout uh, design-based research, community design-based research or YPAR, things like that, uh, youth, youth participatory action research. So that is you know, the engagement of design uh, being a communal process has always been writ large the way that I like to do things. And uh, to be, for, for games to do things in a design-based way without enacting like making the, the cycles transparent. Like I love exit cards. I love debriefing, like all those things in, in a, whether or not it was a LARP or a card game, just like, hey, how was this helpful? Is like always a general question that I love to ask. Um, and how you get engagement uh, with, with people to just, not just to do an activity, but to like reflect upon, because reflection is for me, one of the other most important parts about the play. Yeah. Reflecting with the play. Uh, Brian, I'm going to ask you the same question. <clears throat> what is there one thing you would like game designers to know about how to design ga design games with education in mind? What would that be? I would I would say, you know, I, I work in the home as well. You know, I don't I don't just work in the office. I work in different homes. Um. And I would say, have that thing that's drawing everyone to the table, that's drawing everyone to this, like, like, have, have it, oh, you know what, <laughs> here you go, this is the thing. Okay, this is the thing, everybody. <laughs> yeah, have something that the player can fidget with. <laughs> have something the player can fidget with to keep their body occupied while their mind is focused on your game <laughs> you know like um because there's there's that you you know it's you're not going to be able to have something for everyone you know um and really that's i i don't that that can't be a, a, you know you can have that as a goal try to hit as many people as possible um but is it going to be as potent when it gets there? Is it going to be as um, important? And so, I would I would say that if you're making something for families, make it so like the whole family can play, right? Like make it so that the parent can easily teach the child, but the child can easily play it. You know, like you, 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 you have have that thing that's bringing everybody to the table, um, and keeping them engaged. We talked about like flow and mastery earlier, um, and that create like look. When you're when you have your play test, because have your play test and lots of play tests. When you have your, the, that play test, look for those moments where people are losing track of time. And it's just flying by. Or look for those moments where people are, are are having positive emotions, and they're laughing and they're and they're into it. Because those are the kind of moments you're trying to create for your players, and that's what's going to help keep that replay. That's because you know that they're hitting that that they're hitting that that spot of flow in those moments. Because that's how you could physically see it. It's mm -hmm. great. So you're giving uh, play test play testing advice for designers, you know, look for those moments of flow experience when they're leaning forward, when they're losing track of time, all those things are great. And it doesn't have to be like, so sometimes positive emotion isn't just happiness. Sometimes it's like deep concentration, depending on the vision of your game, right? And so for me, uh, before we get to questions from the audience, I think what I'd like to see 
is if designers can make lesson plans, I know you're not all teachers, but if you are a teacher and you can make a lesson plan to go along with your game. So just like the back page, give me a list of other resources. Give me a list of questions, inquiry line questions that I should ask my students at various grade levels after we played this game. That would be a great way to do things. Uh, I think that would be lovely and wonderful. And I don't expect everybody to do it, but if you can, I will buy your game. A little QR code that goes back to our website. Yeah. Anything. Anything that helps us to use that tool in a classroom or therapeutic situation, I think would, would be valuable to us. Cool. So um, I guess we're ready for questions. Maybe you have any Maybe. questions in the chat? Yeah, we do have a couple of questions in here. Um, I want to invite the audience uh, when you hear me say this uh, on the Twitch to actually maybe come up with a couple more. But uh, the first one uh, for the panel is um, it's it's about uh, maybe uh, gaming in an educational setting. Uh, the question is, there's a lot of uh, unexplored potential for games in education. One of the major challenges is the issue of scale. Most RPGs and board games uh, are usually designed for small groups, two to six people. But uh, many classrooms have 18 to 22 students in them. Uh, do you have any ideas about how to bridge that gap and meet the design challenge of scale? Wants to field that one? So um, I ran a, a, a camp. I ran, a, I ran a role play camp. Uh, we had a, it was all middle schoolers, uh, and uh, it, the 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 previous experience was players who had who had several D and D experiences, and then people who had never touched dice whatsoever in in a role playing game setting. And we went from uh, several uh, people who went from zero knowledge to creating their own uh, systems at the end of the camp. So. Uh, being able to flow with the design groups as as they desire to be grouped together, and then being able to summarily break those clicks up as they necessarily needed to be um, was just it, it. You know, you just want to have a diversity of of experiences in in doing games and the classroom, not just sit yourself to one framework about how you're going to do small groups all together yeah doing doing big group role-playing games uh you know most of most of us as gms probably don't usually go like past eight or nine players in a game that's that's rough it makes battles hard it makes asking who's going to do what next the, the 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 important part of the thing and that's not what you necessarily want to do uh so like at least for me like just be comfortable with you. I mean, you just have to talk to your students. How do you want to be grouped up? Like, create agreements, charters. I mean, you you could do the right. whole like break them down into smaller groups. Um, and there's other games to keep that in mind where you will tell a story. Uh, you both are going to tell similar stories, but break them down into separate groups, and then at the end, say how you know talk about your stories and how they're the same or different. So um, you can do it that way. I, I would say um, look at games like uh, like Werewolf, like Avalon, like uh, The Resistance. Look at uh, some of these larger games. Um, and as a designer, ask yourself, like, why do they work? You know, as a teacher, how or why, why, why would they work with your students, right? Um, and then look at it again and say, okay, um, one of, the, one of the toughest aspects of those type of games is keeping engagement till the end. So how do you plan as a designer to keep every, like 18 to 22 people, because that's the, you know, the example, in one, in one large group engaged till the end? Um, and that's where you see some of those games like fall apart. Um, or if they're really strong, like everybody's there for however many minutes. But also you might want to keep that in mind. How long? How many minutes? How long is each round? What what do you what do you plan on doing like with that time? Like because one of the biggest things that came up with with the game that we're working on is how do we do fifteen minute increments in a storytelling game? Because you're trying to do it for school, for for therapy, for teaching, you know, like and and 
Yeah, and, and that that's all part of the design process and finding what's going to make or break uh, what you're doing for a larger group. Other things you can do for larger groups is look for games that are essentially multiplayer solitaire, uh, which we you know talked a little bit about as something we don't love sometimes, but sometimes, hey, that's what it works. And so a game like um, Karuba, a game like um, a lot of roll and rights or flip and rights, so like Welcome 2 works super well. Um, we did it with like thousands of people at once at Shucks, right? You can play it with umpteen number of people. All they need is that sheet. And then you flip some cards and every student makes a decision. Once everybody's kind of logged in their decision, you flip the next card. And in the end, it's an activity and you're learning something from it if you have a debrief, you will anyway. Um, but if people cheat, eh, not a big deal. They're, they're, it's more the engagement of playing this game and doing this thing as opposed to winning or losing. Um, and so there are definitely games like that. I think you can do some like asynchronous stuff like that we used to do with play by email. I'm super old. We used to play by actual snail mail, um, letters and stamps and lick them and send them. Um, that was awful. But you could do stuff where you have um, you know groups, like a mega game. If you've ever played a mega game, you could do that in a classroom where you break up uh, like a class of 22 you could break that up into like eight factions of three to four players, um, students per group, and they could make decisions on behalf of whoever, whatever faction they're representing, right? Mm. Do things like that, which actually might be really good for a lot of that social kind of engagement that you're trying to get for certain subjects. Um, like for sure, history, social science, those types of things. You could literally make a mega game that would cover things like, uh, you know, World War II or whatever. I don't know and, why I picked that, but you know. In in our in our role play camp, we also had uh, I mean, like not just multiplayer solitaire, the, but the the fact of being able to do design and redesign, uh, so that mm. people could could sit there and do world building, character building, things like that by themselves if the, if they weren't feeling up to the social engagement. Um, and uh, in another uh, design space where we had a Moncala club for uh, uh, elementary school kids. Um, we used, uh, not the, uh, shoot, uh, the four, uh, player types, social, competitive, exploratory, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, shoot, yeah. I forget the last one. Uh, so we, so we, we designed stations to those, to those, uh, uh, player types and had, uh, elementary school kids, uh, choose their station and, in, in, in that way. So we, the self-selection um, and being able to do engagement with large groups down to them being able to choose where they wanted to be was mainly a big driver. Agency, very, very important. Hmm. Oh, next question, Mickey. Uh, okay, yeah, the, uh, I have a comment here that I'm gonna try to reframe in the form of a question because I think uh, it's okay. fun to see you guys tease it out a little. Um, in, um, Yes, in playtesting uh, a game design that maybe is specifically intended to be played in an educational setting or to match a curriculum, um, have you thought, like, talk about maybe the idea of uh, doing a teacher's guide uh, as distinct necessarily from just a basic rule book? Okay, um, you know, bops. <laughs> you know, bops, then, uh, like, how to bridge in, how to orient the students to that, and then how to do the participatory, participatory teaching part of it. Um, there, there's a whole like nomenclature of how to actually write lesson plans. And I would suggest that you go look at that uh, because many teachers follow that. And if you write up something like that, they can, they'll know how to implement that right away. That's uh, B-O-P-P-P-S. Uh, you can just Google that and you'll, you'll find out um, those types of things. Templates. <laughs> this is one of those things where we kind of hit, um, like, like when we're work when we're working on animals and adventures, where we're like, all right, uh, you you go this way and you start working on like being able to explain this as a therapist to therapist because you got to teach therapists how to run games because that's one of the biggest issues that I've seen is. Um, whether or not as a therapist you know how to run 
any games to begin with, let alone role-playing games and, you know, storytelling games and how to make that therapeutic, right? Uh, but then it was, all right, how do we explain this for for teachers as well? And then just like, okay, you're going to be in charge of writing something so that teachers understand what we're trying to talk about. And so we kind of like broke up the, the workload in that regard. Um, but it is, it's important to know if you can figure it out, because this is where you, this is going back to what Gabriel was saying. You you need other other people that get to, to to make your thoughts come out. Sometimes you need someone else to help you translate them, right? Um, but the idea of you might be saying the same thing and using very different vocabulary, and so um, you you as a as a game designer. Uh, you, you might need to find people to help you translate that in a way that either A, the teachers are going to understand for you to write stuff for them or parents are going to understand. So that way, like, because even if you made something perfect for the teachers to hand over and run with, you still might need the parents to understand, even if it's just a one-page cliff note to explain mm -hmm. why these teachers are doing this with, their, with, with your, you know, with your kids. Uh, I were, uh, worked with a foundational member for a group called NDN Players, uh, and we were an intergenerational, intertribal, uh, inter interdepartmental uh, uh, PhD native group doing game design and talking about game stuff. And uh, we created a game called Potlatch um, regarding the, the uh, practices of potlatching uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Now, uh, since everybody who was in that group was all uh, Washington Staters, we knew exactly how we wanted to do the design towards uh, uh, assisting classrooms in Washington State specifically. Uh, now, if a game designer or is uh, thinking about doing this at a at a national level, then you're gonna, you you've got your work cut out for you trying to identify how to create teacher stuff per each state um, or sitting there going, well, I guess I'll just make something that is generalizable to the next generation science standards. Uh, I mean, sure, you can, but then you've got, the, I mean, there's all sorts of translation problems between state to state at that point. So like, just like Brian was saying, you, you need you need to have a teacher to, to talk you through how to make those designs uh, because it, it's not like it's, the templates don't exist out there, but if you speak in the wrong language, the references aren't going to hit for educators. And we haven't talked about this because this could be like a whole other thing, but the idea of, yeah, teachers and also librarians, mm. right? Oh, yeah. Because, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of what we're making here are books. <laughs> and like, could could these books also fit on that on their shelves? Mm -hmm. how, how do you, as a, let's say, if you're making a role-playing game um, or player's manual, uh, you know, along those lines is... Can you find? Can you design it such a way that it's going to find space on their shelves? Because mm -hmm. that would be helpful, you know. Or even have having librarians uh, be able to, um, if they understand what you're doing, trust me, they're going to be fine with having a game night there. You know. Love. Yeah. Uh, all right, Mickey. I think we're up to probably our last question. Actually, um, I think it would be fine if you wanted to go ahead and give your final thoughts and then let everybody know, uh, you know, what your social media and contact stuff is and go ahead and wrap up. Um, All right. I'm, uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, Brian, go ahead. Um, well, um, my name is, again, Dr. Brian Quinones. Um, you can check out what we're doing at Gaming Approaches. Uh, our website is therapyinplay.com. Uh, I will be on a panel uh, later today at, I believe it's at 8, 8.30, let me see, 8.30, RPGs for Therapy, um, and to do some of this conversation over there. I am and have been Gabriel de Los Angeles. Uh, I don't have a lot of social media presence at this time, but uh, you can find various panels that I've been recorded on through the Living Games Conference um, and uh, the, a keynote at the 2016 one uh, where I talked about uh, 
culturally responsible game design. Um, and just Google my name. There you go. Perfect. Thank you. And I'm Sen Fung Lim. You can find me on Twitter at Sen Fung Lim. Um, and I guess my latest project is well, it's the, the pitch project, which is what's going on right now. Tomorrow, there'll be 50 designers pitching their games to 40 publishers within a five hour period. So that'll be fun. Let's see how that goes. So thank you very much for listening. And, uh, you know, if you want to ask us questions, uh, maybe we'll be in the Metatopia Discord under the um, panel watch party audio yeah. channel. Panel watch party, that's right. Yeah. Cool. Nice. All right. Well, thank you very much.